Well, this morning, as we typically do, we're going to do a few more sermons on the life and ministry of Jesus. So we're going to do a three-week post-Easter sermon series through the, um, not only the resurrection, Jesus' interaction with some of the disciples, um, the ascension in a few weeks, and then following that, we are going to start a series um, that won't be through every chapter, but an overview of the book of Revelation. So put on your seatbelts and get ready for that. Well, a few weeks ago, the Barna Group, the Barna Group is a research organization. Back on March 1st, they published an article called Doubt and Faith, Top Reasons That People Doubt Christianity. Doubt and faith, top reasons people doubt Christianity. It indicated that almost 80% of practicing Christians have experienced some kind of doubt in their faith in the Lord over the past few years. Can you believe that? Almost 80% of practicing Christians have experienced some kind of doubt in their faith in the Lord over the past few years. And there were two primary reasons for this, although there was a long list. There were two primary reasons that people are prone to doubt their faith in the Lord Jesus. You can probably anticipate what those are. The number one reason was the reality of human suffering or the problem of evil. As people you know, consider the world that we live in and all of the difficult things that happen, and um, you just read the news and people have a hard time harmonizing that, squaring that with a kind and benevolent God. So that was reason number one. The second reason was close behind hypocrisy in the church or a bad experience with the church often causes people to doubt their faith in the Lord, that if they could be treated like this by people in the church or by the church, how could a good God allow for this? Well, to me, this reinforces the fact that doubt is a very normal part of the Christian life. Very normal. I would submit that most Christians experience doubt at some point in their walk with the Lord, and sometimes it can be emotionally crippling. There are few things that can cause people such angst, such heartache, such confusion as when they are potentially doubting whether or not the gospel is true, whether or not the faith that they've enjoyed for years is actually real. Well, I find it very encouraging to read that even the disciples of the Lord Jesus struggled with doubt. Even one of the most famous people in the New Testament, John the Baptist. Do you remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist? How did Jesus describe John the Baptist? How significant was John the Baptist? Do you remember what he said about John the Baptist? He's the greatest man born among women. And John the Baptist, you remember when he was languishing in Herod's prison? Do you remember what he did? He sent his disciples to go see Jesus. And what was the question that the disciples were given John's to ask Jesus? Do you remember that? Are you the one or should we be looking for another? Why did he ask that? Why was he questioning that? Because he was languishing in prison. It didn't seem to make sense. If Jesus was the Messiah, why John the Baptist would be suffering in prison? Well, John the Baptist wasn't the only one. We know that Peter struggled with his faith at points. 
And also Thomas, the Apostle Thomas, struggled with faith, struggled with doubt. And Thomas's story, Thomas's approach is comforting to me. I can resonate with what Thomas grappled with, what he thought about, how he dealt with that, and perhaps you can too. Perhaps you're struggling with doubt today. Christians all over the world last week celebrated the culmination of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're at a point where you're not sure that that's true, or maybe you're having a doubt, maybe you're having a Thomas-like moment. If so, this text is for you. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. John writes, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark, meaning the holes of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, I'll have to admit, I absolutely love the Apostle Thomas. Now, it's interesting, not sure why this is the case, Thomas is mentioned in all four Gospels, but it's only the Gospel of John that we get insight into his character, into his personality, what he's like. John mentions him on three different occasions, reactions to the Lord Jesus that Thomas has that lets us know more about who he is. In many ways, he reminds me of Peter. He can be impulsive. He can be direct. He can be transparent. He can be a little pessimistic, like I can be. So I really resonate and relate to Thomas. Okay, so let's set the scene, and then we're going to go back and briefly explore two of his interactions with Jesus that kind of explain what happened in John 20. But the events of, of today's passage, okay, it's a week after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and Jesus appears and has a special message 
to Thomas. But before we jump into our text, let's go back to John chapters 10 and 11. In John chapter 10, Jesus is in Jerusalem for one of the festivals. He's doing some teaching. Um, I would say the intensity in Jesus' public ministry is ratcheting up. The religious officials are there, and they have one question for Jesus. They're tired of his, um, what they perceived to be kind of his opaqueness with respect to who he was, and so they put it to him straight. Do you remember what they asked him? Are you the Christ? If so, come out with it. Jesus responds in John chapter 10 by actually going one up on them. Do you remember what Jesus said that enraged the religious officials in John 10? He goes beyond identifying himself as the Christ. He said the famous words, I and the Father are what? Are one. Do you remember how the religious officials responded when Jesus said, I and the Father are one? What did they try to do? They tried to stone him. They understood and perceived he had committed, in their minds, a blasphemy. Why? Because he basically called himself Yahweh God Almighty. I and the Father are one. They tried to stone him. They picked up stones to stone him. Somehow, Jesus and the disciples got away. Okay, it's a few weeks later, and word has come to Jesus that his dear friend, Lazarus, was gravely ill. Okay, and Jesus decides to wait for a couple days, and then he says, we're going to go to him. Do you remember where Lazarus was from? He's from Bethany which is right beside Jerusalem, okay? And one of the disciples said to the Lord Jesus, are you serious? We're going to go back to Bethany right now? They just tried to stone us there because Bethany is so close to Jerusalem. That disciple thought that it would be a real risk to go back. Jesus said, yes, we are going to go back and see Lazarus. And then John records the response of one man, Thomas. Thomas says, and I quote, let us also go that we may die with him. What's your interpretation of that? Let us also go. When it was clear that Jesus had made up his mind, we're going. Thomas says, all right, let's go that we may die with him. It's certainly courageous. He was willing to give his life to go be with the Lord Jesus, to associate with him, to minister with him. It showed a heart of devotion. Would you also say maybe there was a tinge of pessimism in there? Like, well, all right, let's go ahead and get it over with. If we're going to die, let's go ahead and go. A lot of scholars and commentators view Thomas as being a realist, a pessimist. He's like, like, I think he thought it was miraculous that they escaped just a few weeks before. To go back into the lion's den was crazy, but we'll go and we'll die with them. That's our first exposure to the personality of Thomas. Then go a few chapters later. John chapter 14. Jesus is teaching this famous passage, and he says, in my Father's house are what? Are many rooms. Would I have told you this if that wasn't the case? And then he also says, and you know the way that I'm going. Okay, to where I'm going. Only one disciple responds there. Who is it? It's Thomas. And he says, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? 
Who here loves it when someone in class asks those kinds of questions? You know what I mean? We've all got the same questions. We have no idea what the professor is saying. We want to look like we understand. We want to look composed, okay? You're so thankful when your friend raises his hand and says, I don't get it. I don't understand. That's who Thomas was. He's like, we don't know where you're going. How in the world would we understand the way? And then in John 14, 6, Jesus responds with some of the most famous words in the Bible. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It was Thomas who elicited that question. It was Thomas who had the courage to go ahead and voice what everybody else was thinking and questioning. You got to love this guy. Thomas is wonderful. He's incredible. And so that kind of sets the stage for today. Now let's look at the text here briefly. I think that gives us insight into why he wasn't there. There are 10 disciples who are in the upper room on the first evening, that first Easter Sunday. There are 10 disciples in the upper room. Judas is not there. Thomas is not there. Okay, let's look at the text. Now Thomas... One of the twelve, called the twin, he was a twin, that's interesting, I wonder who his brother was. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Okay, why wasn't Thomas there based on what you've heard about his personality? Do you think he just didn't know they were gathering? Did he not get the news? Was he busy eating dinner somewhere else? What do you think? Why wasn't Thomas there? This is where I appreciate Thomas. I think Thomas figured, it's over. It's done. He was a realist. You know? He saw what happened to Jesus. Like I said last week, like I can't convey how significant it was that Jesus was publicly Crucified. That's what the Romans did to publicly humiliate people who had the audacity to stand against Rome or what they perceived to be standing against Rome. It publicly discredited Jesus when he was crucified before the whole world. And so Thomas is just being logical. He's just being rational. That falsified it. Why would I go meet with the disciples? That's the same thing like in our context, theoretically, if they found the bones of Jesus. If they found the bones of Jesus, this is a thought experiment, okay? Thought experiment. If the bones of Jesus were found, what would that do to our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ? What would that do to Christianity? If the bones of Jesus were found? Friends, what would that do? It would be over. I mean, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. That would falsify the Christian faith. If we found the bones of Jesus, I love y'all, I would not be preaching here next Sunday. Thomas saw Jesus crucified. Thomas was a realist. He could be direct. I think he thought, what is the point of associating myself with these guys who are marked men given this new reality? So he's not there. Look at verse 25. Obviously, the other disciples found him, and they have said, we have seen the Lord. Now, this is fascinating. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands 
the mark, meaning the holes of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Why does he say that? If you look previous in the passage, when Jesus showed up eight days before, Jesus is the one who initiated that. When Jesus appeared to the disciples, he offered to them, look at the nail prints in my hand. Look at the wound in my side. Jesus is the one who offered confirmatory evidence that he was, in fact, the risen Lord. They had told that to Thomas, and that's why Thomas said, unless I have that same experience, I will never believe. Eight days later, he gets it confirmed. Look with me at verses 26 through 29. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. See, Thomas is there now, even though he's, you know, doubting, he's a realist. I think the entire group telling him what they saw, okay, now he's back. He's going to check for himself. Thomas was with them this time in verse 26. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. He views him now as God Almighty. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then look at verse 30 and 31. Look at the way that the Lord Jesus accommodates his people and how John communicates this. See, he knew that people were going to doubt and people were going to question. And Jesus knew that he wasn't going to physically manifest himself to people after that initial apostolic age. Blessed are those who don't see me in my resurrected body and still believe. Verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so I want to make five observations based on this. The first observation, to be a little repetitive, is doubt is normal. Don't beat yourself up if you struggle with doubt at various times, even significant doubt. That is a very normal part of the Christian life. Okay? We're a society prone to two extremes. On the one hand, our society, our culture kind of, you know, I would say um, unintentionally, informally operates according to kind of like a, a scientism, if you will. Like you can only know truth through the scientific method, through the empirical scientific method. If I, if I can't know truth through that method, then truth can't be known. Okay? We want to science our way. Or other people are more experience-based. Okay, in our culture, experience equals truth, which relates to that poll. What was the number one concern for people? The problem of evil, the problem of human suffering, natural evil, moral evil, people who have experienced great loss. They can't harmonize that experience with what they believe to be a kind, benevolent Savior. Or the hypocrisy in the church, things, maybe issues of abuse or 
terrible scandals that have happened to the church, those experiences can discredit the gospel in the minds of some people. Doubting is normal. You know, I would just say we are, we are all, in a sense, based on our culture. We're, we're doubters kind of by nature. So it's normal. Don't beat yourself up with it. That leads to number two. I want to encourage you to lean into your doubt. Doubts can often lead to deepened faith, to growth in the Lord. The wonderful thing about Christianity is that it can handle all of our doubts, all of our concerns. There is no other worldview that provides an explanation of reality like the Christian worldview. I think that by studying and leaning into your doubts, it will fortify your faith. Like I was listening just yesterday. I guess it was Friday. I love this podcast I've told you about before called Unbelievable, hosted by this British man named Justin Brierley. It's been going 17 years now. And every week on Friday, the podcast drops. And over the course of 17 years, they have had some of the most thoughtful, intelligent, atheistic, agnostic thinkers of our time interacting with some of the most thoughtful, informed Christian scholars and apologists of our time as well. And Justin Brierley hosts and moderates this discussion on the existence of God, the meaning of life, the reality of suffering, all these kinds of things. It, I didn't realize the podcast was going to be this. I feel like he's my friend, Justin. He's just such a sweet guy. He does a great job moderating. He's very gracious. He's very loving. He tries to have a warm, thoughtful discussion between these two people. The reason they were having this special podcast is because he's leaving. He's transitioning to do something else after 17 years. And the person that was interviewing him asked him the question, after 17 years of hearing the best and most robust um, explanations of why some people think Christianity is wrong, why are you still a Christian? Justin said, you know, it would simply be that for me, after hearing all of these arguments, Christianity remains the most compelling explanation of reality that I've ever encountered. I've examined the other versions of reality, the other explanations of why we're here, how we're here, what life is about, and I find them utterly lacking. In the end, I find the Christian story the most compelling vision of reality. I find that historically, philosophically, emotionally, it makes sense of us and our experiences well. For me, it makes sense to be a Christian. Beloved, I encourage you. Doubting is normal. Lean into it. Study it. Think about it. Christianity can take it. Third, I would say, life is full of mystery, and we're never going to get all our questions answered. If you're like me, you can, I have a control idol. I love control. I love knowing the answers to all my questions, and some things in life cannot be answered. I can understand theologically why there is a problem of evil. I cannot understand it emotionally. 
It's hard for me to wrap my heart and mind around the existence of suffering and pain and the horror of our world. And this side of glory, due to sin and finitude, we are never going to get all of our questions answered. We're going to have to live with mystery. We'll never know everything, but the great thing about the gospel is we know the one who does. And we can trust him with that mystery. Fourth, I want to encourage all of us, keep our eye on the ball. Keep the main things, the main thing in the Christian life. People get divided, concerned over young earth, old earth, evolution, inerrancy, all these other things. People are presented with maybe Bible contradictions that they can't reconcile. What do we do with that? If the Bible is wrong here, does that mean the whole thing is wrong? Oftentimes people operate to what I call, according to what I would call an all or nothing fallacy. Like if they could find one discrepancy that they can't understand, it's like a Jenga game. You pull out that one piece and everything falls down. That is not the case at all. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I am committing to you matters of first importance, things of primary significance, the atoning death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. That is the main thing. That is the central core claim of the Christian gospel. If you can't reconcile a story in the gospel with another story, no bearing whatsoever on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So doubting is normal. I want to encourage you to lean into your doubts. We'll never get all our questions answered. Okay? There is mystery in the Christian life. Make the main things the main thing. And last but not least, look at how the Lord Jesus dealt with people who doubted. Look at how the Lord Jesus accommodated himself to Thomas. Jesus corrected Thomas to be sure, but he did it in a gracious and compassionate way. Look with me again at verses 26 through 28. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. He's there now. All the door, although the doors were locked, Jesus in this glorified form, he's able to just come in. And he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. First thing he does, he said to Thomas, he didn't reject him. He didn't humiliate him. He did not turn him away. What does he do? He said, Thomas, put your finger here. I'm going to do for you what I did for the others. Put your finger here. See my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. And Thomas did. He answers, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those. Blessed are those at Providence Presbyterian Church and Christians all over the world who have not seen me and yet have believed. A few weeks later, the Lord Jesus Christ poured out the Holy Spirit on his church, giving people hearts to believe, hearts to understand. Beloved, what did the Lord say in the Old Testament? He said, seek me, and what? And you will find me when you seek me with what? 
all of your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Take all your doubts, all your concerns, all your questions to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a real person. He's our resurrected Lord. As we've already heard, he loves you. He cares for you. He understands. He will accommodate you. He can handle your tough questions. Draw near to him, the Lord Jesus, and he will draw near to you. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for this wonderful account of what happened after that first Easter Sunday. Father, we thank you for the ways in which the physical, bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ transformed the lives of his disciple and then transformed the entire world. Heavenly Father, we, if we're honest, we have to admit we can definitely relate to not only John the Baptist, Peter, but the Apostle Thomas, sometimes known as Doubting Thomas. We, we resonate this with this. We get this. We can relate to his questions. We can relate to his doubt as we have laid awake at night, at times wondering, is it really true? Is Jesus really the Christ? Is he really the Son of God? Was he really born of a virgin? Was he really raised from the dead? Is the gospel really true? Lord, we thank you that you have compassion when we doubt, when we question. Father, give us the strength to bring our questions to you. Holy Spirit of the living God, grow us and fill us, encourage us, give us sharp and keen minds to know how to address these questions. Give us insight and direction into how to answer them. As Chris Coleman said before, help us to always go back to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to believe so that we can then understand. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen and amen.